I remember something that really helped me. I, I used to be a big reader. Well, I still have my books or education. But then also myself and my partners, we had a mentor. Actually, it's kind of a weird situation, but he worked with us for a few years and guided us through things. And he constantly used to tell me particularly, he goes, look, as soon as you can wrap your mind around the fact that you don't have to do everything in your company, you can delegate and create these systems, policies, and procedures. He goes, you can own 50 companies and he goes, and work less and make 10 times the amount of money. And I'm like, well, our business is different. He goes, see, right away, you weren't even listening. He goes, at the end of the day, it's all the same. Okay, you're following the same form for your taxes. The lines in the taxes are the same, okay? But I'm like, yeah, well, we do this. This is why we're different. He goes, it doesn't matter. The IRS doesn't care. <laughs> Welcome to the I Fired My Boss Franchise Podcast. My name is Dan Claps, founder and CEO of Franchise Playbook, a franchisor platform where we create, own, and operate dynamic franchise brands in the mobile services space. And my life's goal is to help people just like you fire their boss and become a business owner. And I'm Christian Dadalak, top franchise consultant and co-founder of Real Franchising, a leading franchise consulting firm. And together, we're on a mission to help people fire their boss, hire themselves, and live the American dream through franchise ownership. Welcome to another episode of the I Fired My Boss podcast. Very excited about today's episode. We have our guest, Mike Stamper, on. Mike is a serial entrepreneur. He has launched his own business from scratch with his wife that he built for many years and was able to exit that business to a large, probably billion-dollar company that we'll talk about. Uh, and after that business, Mike became uh, has a, a background in franchise consulting and also as a franchise owner in a mental health franchise that's definitely changing the game when it comes to mental health providing that service to uh, people all over America. And Mike will tell you more about his background. But before we introduce him formally and start chatting, I wanted to say hello to Christian, our co-host. How are you doing, Christian? Doing awesome, man. Having an awesome day so far. Excited to talk to you, Mike. Thanks for coming on. And uh, before we do jump into everything, just wanted to give a, a brief shout out and uh, thank you to one of our sponsors who makes this podcast possible. And that is a Silicon Signs Company based out of Salt Lake City, Utah. Amazing team. They're sponsoring this podcast episode. Maybe you've heard us talk about them before. And uh, really what Silicon Signs do, what they do is uh, they specialize in interior and exterior signage specifically for the franchise industry. So um, you know, we've talked to many different people that have had nightmare experiences dealing with getting signage properly done in, in the right order and minimizing the headaches when ordering signs and working with sign vendors. And so we can tell you just from understanding Chase and his team over at Silicon Signs, they're the real deal. They have a team of designers, project managers. They're not just there to take your order, but they actually guide you through the entire sign process. And their goal is to approach that relationship as partners. So their goal is to take away many of the headaches that are associated with, with the signage process, like dealing with landlord requirements and approvals, permitting, tight installation schedules. And, you know, just for some credibility purposes, I mean, they work with, Companies like Crumble Cookies, Capriati Sandwich Shop, Wing Zone, Dirty Dough, Handles Ice Cream, and more. So they're legit. They work with some of the best brands that are out there. And uh, what's nice also is they don't have a sales force. Their model is just to become the preferred sign vendor for franchisors. And so since they don't have to pay expensive commissions, 
They're able to stay lean, compete nationwide, and they've done work in all 50 states and even Canada and Puerto Rico. So if you're a franchisee, you'd like to get a quote from them, check out their website, that's siliconesigns.com and request a call. Again, that's siliconesigns.com. They typically respond in a you know couple of hours. And then of course, if you're a franchisor and are looking for a, a great signed vendor option, the CEO, Chase Dalton, would like for you to reach out to him directly. His email is chase at siliconesigns.com. And they do have an online request uh, from their website that can get you connected with him as well. So again, siliconescience.com. Thank you so much for making this podcast possible. Reach out to them today. And uh, without further ado, let's let's jump right into this. So Mike, how you doing today? Doing great. You know, fantastic day, middle of summer. You know, I'm ready to kind of jump into it and see what I can share. Love it. Well, I think a good place to probably start is just your background. I know you have extensive business experience, like Dan had said. So how did you get into business? And then how did you ultimately find franchising? Well, it's a great question. I have a very eclectic background. I originally went to school to become uh, an architect. I actually ended up in engineering. So I have kind of a, um, I guess, a technical engineering background. But um, talk about life-changing things. Uh, there was a recession when I was working in engineering. So my company closed. Uh, the type of uh, engineering I was doing was uh, designing subdivisions for housing projects. So when the housing goes out, you know, a lot of things go out. So I was always fascinated by marketing, business, and sales. I wanted to own my own company, so I went into sales and marketing. And simultaneously, my wife and I actually created a cheerleading camp. She was a cheerleader in high school and college, and her dad had created a successful brand of basketball camps. So we wanted to emulate the cheer camps from that. Uh, what we found out very quickly was the cheer camps were not the same as basketball camps, obviously. And so we moved into the competition space. And the first competition we ran, I think we had a total of six teams, very scaled down. It was a high school gym. Fast forward to the time when we actually sold the company, we were doing events where we would have seven, 8,000 participants, cheerleaders, and 25,000 spectators doing them in an arena like, um, like um, any major arena in a country uh, where we would have three, four million dollars of the light sound stage and we would hire up to 300 people for the weekend to run the event. So it was like a rock show. It's like a American Idol meets Dances with the Stars doing event production. We also created a very successful apparel company that we sold at events and online, e-commerce. And for a while, we were actually producing obstacle races, which were extremely fun and mud runs. So we had a really good run with that. Uh, and during that period, we actually, to increase market share, it's very hard once you get to a certain point to grow organically, as everybody knows. So we actually started buying smaller companies and we created multiple brands. Then we merged with another competitor of ours. So at the end of the day, we had like eight, nine different brands. And so we were constantly on the hunt uh, to acquire new brands, new market share. So we bought some uh, sound companies. If one particular market uh, I remember the Carolinas were really big in mid-Atlantic, the Northeast and the Southeast, mainly East Coast. We were we were in 32 different states at the end. We were doing some stuff on the West Coast, but mainly East Coast. The North Carolina market, we could not really get any traction in. And there was a local company that pretty much had the majority of all the camp business and the business there. So we figured the best way to get that market share was to buy them. Uh, so then we went on a hunt to start buying smaller competitors and working out deals with them. And we're like, oh, this is kind of cool. We can play in that space. But 
there was one very large company out there, Varsity Brands, which controlled the whole entire industry uh, internationally. So we we ended up actually selling to them, uh, you know, right time, right place, and they had the backing of private equity, which we thought, well, maybe we can do that. Maybe we can buy Varsity. But then it's kind of like, well, that's a little unrealistic because I think at the time, Varsity was generating $3 billion and they had a lot of subsidiaries. They owned sports management company, television production company, uniform company, et cetera. Um, so we did that transaction. Uh, we spent, uh, I guess, about 26, 27 years and basically made every mistake possible. Uh, when my wife and I started, we were 25 years old. We were literally making stuff up as we went along. At the time, the industry was not a mature industry, so it was kind of like the wild, wild west. I mean, we were just, you know, through creativity, sheer luck. Uh, there were a couple of nights that we literally stayed up all night and worked throughout the night prior to the competition because we had to. Um, and so every aspect of the business one of us actually did. And what was great when we actually sold the company is we had a very good staff. Uh, we were very mature and we'd actually worked our way, myself and my partners at that time, to a position to where we could be more uh, creative on the board and basically manage it from the top down. And so that education process in and of itself was very, very valuable. And so that is something as far as a, a serial entrepreneur, I, I really like that experience that we gained from that. So after we sold, uh, actually right before COVID, which is phenomenal, okay, because we had no idea what would have happened during COVID. We know what happened. <laughs> uh, pretty much devastated everyone, including the uh, event production industry for cheerleading events is I started looking at, okay, what's what's the next gig, so to speak? What am I going to do, okay? Um, because towards the end, I really didn't have that same excitement as I did at the beginning to where I was building a company. You know, at the end, it was more about reading reports, analyzing, making sure everybody is doing the correct things and uh, producing the KPIs. Uh, so I started looking around for companies to purchase because I'm like, what do I want to do? Do I want to create something? I know how long it actually took to create something from scratch. Okay. It takes forever, policies, procedures, years to get into that and to get in their flow. So I'm like, well, I'll buy an existing company. So I started looking at existing companies and a lot of them, um, it was kind of fluff. Okay. It just wasn't, it wasn't there. It didn't feel right. And from actually buying companies, and selling companies because we had actually sold off a couple of subsidiaries before we sold our main company to varsity and private equity. It kind of gave me some experience in doing that, knowing what to look for. And what I found is some of the companies I was looking at were actually franchises. And so I started looking at that and I'm kind of like, well, this is kind of interesting. Um, a business in a box. Okay. Somebody else has done all the work, the creative work. They've got a brand up and running. It's a proven uh, business and kind of like plug and play. If you follow the directions and you do exactly what you're supposed to do and you add your own creativity into it, chances are you're going to have a very successful brand and a successful business. So I'm kind of like, hmm, 
that's kind of interesting. And then I found out there's an opportunity to become a franchise consultant to where you could consult, help and educate people get into those brands. So I'm like, oh my God, this is like, how come I never knew about this years ago? So I'm like, I'm all in. So I became a franchise consultant. Also with uh, the goal in mind is to buy a franchise. So obviously somebody who has built businesses, bought businesses and sold businesses, that was kind of like a kid getting into a candy store. You know, it's like, which one, whatever, what am I going to do? You know, blah, blah, blah. There's a thousand different options in here. So what am, what am I looking for? What's going to fit my needs and what, you know, with my experience. So started looking around and I would say that uh, I probably looked during that period of trying to figure out what the next step is, what the next goal is. I probably looked at 150 to 200 different companies to purchase, which is, I would never recommend that to anyone. Uh, but I think I was being a little too picky or I was looking for something that, you know, wowed me or whatever. Then with Ellie, uh, I, I became a multi-unit franchise owner with Ellie and purchased six territories. The decision for that was probably made in 36 to 72 hours. Okay. Which after taking two years and looking at everything possible out there, um, that decision was made very quickly. And it wasn't like, Hmm, I want to do this. It was like, how many territories do I want to buy? Uh, and, and so that's a very interesting change. Yeah. That's something interesting, Mike. And appreciate you sharing the, the background, but it's, it's interesting. Like, as you know, I'm, uh, a, a younger franchisor or a new franchisor and being on this end, even though I've been in franchising for 10 years almost in, in development, um, it's fascinating that there's people that come into our process that they're early in, this is the first time looking at a brand. And then we have this other type of person, which happens a lot, which is they've looked, like you said, for a year or two, and they come into our process pretty much ready to make a decision within a few weeks. Um, and I didn't, you know, it, it, it's an interesting thing. Sometimes all those initial research just leads you to knowing exactly why it's like like dating right if you if you dated enough and you're yeah. ready you know what you want when you meet the right person you can make that decision as you get uh more experience and, and that's the same thing you know i love what you said about it, it being a recipe and just following you know franchising to a t someone once recently told me franchising i used to think of it like cooking but then i realized <laughs> that cooking you kind of you can do a little bit of your own way and you can eyeball it it's actually more like baking Right. When you bake, you got to follow everything to a T or you can ruin the cake. And so, right. you know, you're, you're really following a baking recipe, not a cooking recipe. That's a great analogy. Yeah. It's, right. And if you think about it, you can't really, you, you have to bake exactly to the way that the instructions go. Yeah. And, and I think, um, well, first of all, any follow on that? Cause I'd like to talk about what that the buying decision was. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what we'd we'd love to hear about. I mean, what was your your criteria, and and how how did that go? Well, for me, part part of what I wanted to do, and something that also really attracted me to franchising, is you can be an owner operator, okay, to where you can have one territory, and depending on what your investment range is, you can operate that business, be the salesperson, do everything. And I think that's fantastic for a lot of people who are transitioning out of a current career or they want to create something better for their family, okay, financially. Uh, there's also the semi-absentee executive level. Nothing is semi-absentee, as they say. But the executive level actually 
getting to that point in the previous companies I own really showed me that this can be done. And if you have a good management team in place and you have everything set up, like you have an attorney you work with, you have your, your CPAs, you have your financial advisors. If you have this, this group of people, this network, then at that point, it, it's really good to look at multi-unit uh, because first of all, the economy of scale, each unit is going to, each territory is going to become more profitable. So I was definitely looking for something that could be an executive level model. And I also wanted something that, and this is just for me, I didn't want a lot of moving parts as far as inventory or brick and mortar. And everybody's a little bit different on that. So I wanted something that was simple, that was easy to understand, as well as it was kind of new and fresh out there. And so that was a major, that was a major thing for me to really get in on an emerging brand and ride that brand. And basically the, the, it, it, to me, it's, it's fun. It's a lot of energy and it's a, I don't want to say it's a little bit harder. I think the only thing with that is to be patient because with a new emerging brand, they're still creating the systems and policies and procedures. They have everything in a box and a manual, so to speak. But once more units come into the system, they're constantly modifying and making it a better brand. Give you an example with Ellie. Ellie basically took off, went through the roof, you know, over 500 territories in 24 months. Amazing. Okay. Because it's new, it's fresh, it serves a purpose everybody is aware of. The country needs more of it. Every time you turn on the news, everybody's talking about mental health. Also, for me, the personal connection was it's a way to destigmatize it. Like most people, I've had people in my family struggle with mental health issues. So I'm kind of like, this is also a great way to get back. This is a way to help destigmatize it. And if I can take my skill set, marketing operations, building companies, and put that into it, that's a lot of fun. Okay. And it, it's really cool to see a brand from the very beginning do that. So what Ellie did, which is, which is a sign of a good franchisor, they looked around at all the people who jumped on, particularly early and said, Hey, look, let's get a steering committee, like a franchisee committee. And so they selected nine people across the country. I'm uh, happily one of them where we basically work with corporate and make recommendations back to corporate. And incorporate in return bounces ideas off of us. And so that is something that we actually can help a little bit. Things that we see out in the field on a daily basis to help corporate and make it better for everyone. So everybody's going to have a different criteria. But for me to have that semi-absentee executive level model and use the skill set that way, that's for me. You know, for somebody else, it may not be. They may not want to take on that responsibility, you know, because at the end of the day, we'll probably have 75 to 100 employees when it's all said and done with the territories. Yeah, the business you're in too is, is great because of like the tangibility to it, right? I love the, the office, what you're going to get to build out and you're going to have six of those. You're going to have a big tangible, you know, footprint. I, I too like that myself. Like, I'm so excited. I told you before we started recording, we're building out our facility in Madison, Wisconsin. It's going to house a lot of people. And I'm used to having a lot of people in an office you know, and, and being able to see and touch and feel and, and that's cool. Although I think in your business, you can't legally work in it, right? Mike, you can't, 
you got to have an office outside of the facility. Is that? Yeah. And thank you for bringing it up. And that, that was another huge factor. Uh, once I realized it's kind of like, hmm, I can't work in it. I don't know how you can get more seven. That's funny. Yeah. It's, it's forced kind <laughs> of absentee because yeah. you have to be a licensed uh, therapist, right? Yes. You have to be a licensed therapist, clinical director, psychologist, uh, psychiatrist. And, um, yeah. And I think another thing, everything's a little bit different, but for us, a huge, um, uh, a huge thing with LA is taking commercial insurance. And so I didn't even know, for example, that you could go see a therapist and your insurance would pay for it. And so that was kind of a new concept to me because I'm like, does everyone know about this? And so what we found out very quickly through marketing and advertising, you say to people, yeah, we take your insurance. They're like, what can I schedule? It's amazing. And from what I understand, at the at the corporate level of LA, they handle the insurance billing and a lot of the the typical headache that you might have in a clinic, don't they? Yeah. Um, thanks for bringing that up. And that is also something that attracted me to uh, LA. And there's a lot of brands out there like that is looking at what's done on the back end as far as shared services. For us, we have insurance verification, uh, somebody who schedules the appointment, as well as the billing, which is huge, and the collection of the bills. And uh, um, that's something to where our collect rate is almost 100%, very, very close to it. Wow. You know, we're three or four points south of that. So a lot of those shared services for the franchise or, or in any type of franchise, the more that they can supply and take that off your plate, that's a huge thing. Because that's where a lot of work is done as a business owner. Now, we still have to look at those KPIs and manage it from a number perspective. But I would much rather do that than actually have a team of 10, 12 people go through that management to do it. Yeah. You see it more and more in franchising. Like, I was just having this conversation with someone that was looking at real estate. And you see more and more real estate investors looking at franchising as a vehicle to invest in. And so as a franchisor, uh, you'd be silly not to realize that in order to have those kind of investors want to buy into your business, though, you need to take a lot off your plate. You need to take hiring, help take hiring, help make easier hiring processes. Obviously, you're a little bit held by joint employer, but what you can to do hiring, pick off the hiring off their plate, lead generation off the plate, support from a, like in my business, we have to take as much of the bookkeeping, reporting, help with insurance billing off the plate of the franchise partner in your business. The same thing with, with, with therapists. If you'd like our help investing in a franchise at no cost to you, head over to ifiredmybosspodcast.com and fill out the form to schedule a free consultation. I love what you do because it's almost like the Uber of mental health. It's like all you're really doing is you're providing a, a, a mental health expert with a platform to work with in. And I, I'm big into providing people just a platform to run with, right? And, and being they almost have their own business. And because of the fact that they're, you know, they're licensed, uh, they went to school for this, they're not going to just not show up. They're going to take it seriously. Mike, I had a question. What do you think, like, if you had to name the one thing that made that brand stand out to you and say, that's why I'm going to do this. And that's why I think it's going to take off as an emerging brand. What would you say was the number one reason? That's a great question. And when I say this, you're going to say that may be one of the bizarre things I've ever heard in my life. Okay. I believe 
that they have called lightning in a bottle. And something that really caught my eye was they have some core values and one of them is humor. And so humor and mental health do not go together when you think about it. Okay. But they literally have a series of t-shirts that, as I said earlier, I started an apparel company. So I, I've made up probably a million t-shirts at this point. They have the most comical t-shirts made up that they wear throughout the corporate office and t-shirts of like all the feels. My therapist knows what you did to me. You know, let that S go. And so I'm kind of like, they're branding mental health and make it, making it comical and making a sense of humor. And I'm like, I've never even heard of that. I've never even seen that. So we're taking that energy and that feel. And that is our hook to hire therapists and to bring them in. It's like, look, if you want to get a scooter, and paint your hair purple, green, orange, change it every day, okay, and ride up and down the hallway, we're all for it. And so that was that was a culture that we had that we built our business on previously. So we we love that. I fell in love with it. My wife fell in love with it because our impression of that industry, everybody's uptight, everybody's serious. And then suddenly it's kind of like, wow, you're wearing comical t-shirts and it's okay to like poke fun at something and everything. And I'm like, I like that culture. So a lot of it is the culture. You know, it's basically, it's the culture. If you tie it back to something to see the t-shirts and that, you know, we can destigmatize this, we can have fun with it. But at the end of the day, it's very helpful and it's a business. Yeah, just to piggyback that, I know Christian, you had a question. You know, it, it's interesting. Like someone asked me this question, like what's the benefit of investing in an emerging brand? And I give, you know, and anyone listening that's uh, potentially investing in Voda, I'd say the same thing to you on a call with me. I tell people that the, the benefit of getting an emerging brand is obviously you got great territory and you get access to the leadership team at a different level. But I also would make the argument that if you don't think my brand with 100 units open and running is going to be a better brand than it is today, you're crazy. Of course, it's going to get better. And so to me, one of the biggest benefits of getting an emerging brand is life's not just about making money, right? It's just one ingredient. You know that we were just having this conversation about money only goes so far, right? I know you had an exit in your last business. We need value. We need peace of mind. We need purpose. We need to have some fun with the people we're working with. And so I always say to people, if they want to get an emerging brand, you know, part of it really truthfully is just the experience, the culture, the fun to be on the ground level, to be able to say, I was one of the, in your case, 33 or 35. I think you said franchisee number 33. Did you say you're 35? Yeah, 35. 35. Mm-hmm. And you know, th- that has inherent value. It's not all just about how much money can I make out of this business. Um, being on the ground level has a lot of value too. So and I hear that in your voice. Like I can hear like you're enjoying being part of something that's bigger than yourself that's gonna really change, you know, re- re- uh, mental health for for the better and, and put it on every street corner. That's what I think you guys are doing. You're taking a fragmented industry and creating a consolidated experience on, on every corner of, of America. Absolutely. And it's also the approach where there's a lot of um, uh, people in the space now that are particularly doing telehealth, um, which was, you know, that became huge during COVID. However, the movement in the industry and what a lot of people are finding is people still want to come in person. So we offer a true hybrid model. So a lot of things like that, that Ellie has planned for the future, such as virtual reality therapy, okay, 
and other types of therapy that are on the surface for PTSD and things like that and being able to work with first responders. And it is very exciting. So we're literally, as we say, we're trying to, you know, change it. And with an industry like um, doing what you're doing, Dan, it, it, you can still stand out even though there's a lot of competitors because it's not the same old, same old. Okay, you're doing something new, fresh, exciting. And so that's going to attract a certain type of individual who wants to be part of that if they have multiple choices in the franchise world. It's kind of like the Burger Wars. Which one do you choose? Well, you choose the brand, unless there's one right on your street corner you want. You choose the one you're comfortable with, you know, the one that you like for whatever reason. Yeah, I, I loved your answer, Mike, about the, the the lightning in a bottle aspect of uh, the number one thing you really liked about Ellie. I mean, in addition to everything else that they provide, but I think that it's it, this is said so often. It's become a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. And that's you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think it is really nice that you can bring humor to another. I mean, maybe on the surface, humor and mental health don't seem to go together. Maybe they do seem counterintuitive. But when you dig a little bit deeper, it is nice to make an inviting environment where it's fun for the therapist. It's inviting for the people that are coming in to get help and it's destigmatizing it. And I think that that's amazing. And so I think so many people out there in business, they think that they need to create the next iPhone or the iPod or something like that. And if you just have a similar concept, maybe just a different way of doing things or, or a more inviting environment and amazing culture. And not to say that Ellie is, is not different in a million other ways beyond that, but I think that that's, just so unbelievably true. And I, so I love what you said there. Um, I guess a question I have as well is in terms of multi-unit ownership and the benefits of it, the economies of scale, what was your mindset behind getting six versus 10 versus one or two or three? I mean, how did you settle on on that number? What, what was, it, what was the, the mindset behind that? Uh, a lot of it came down to demographics and risk and starting out. And so with an emerging brand, particularly with LA, LA became so hot is that within a, within a, uh, say a major metropolitan area, you may have three or four or five different groups looking for the same market. So a lot of it came down of trying to figure out what the demographics are, what the territories are, you know, and kind of carving those out. So at the very beginning, one of the hardest things for any franchisor is to determine how do we define a territory? You know, you're going to use the normal things, population, um, household income, number of single family homes, depending on what you're doing. You want to look for that right fit no matter what you do. Um, so it kind of came out to that. Now, why six? Because that kind of fit in the county that we're in. We're in a county of maybe about six, 700,000 people between Baltimore and DC. We're in Annapolis, Maryland. And so with that, it enables us to cover the whole entire county and a little bit of an, another county. So that's what it came down to at the end. Now, what a lot of people in LA are doing, um, within any type of franchise that's merging like that, you have a couple of different types of groups that jump in and actually seeing it on this side helps me better communicate as a franchise consultant to clients who want to jump into franchising. The people who want to get a couple territories, one or two, and want to be an owner-operator, that's fantastic. But there's a lot of people that want to get in and have five, six to start out. There's a lot of LE owners that have six for some reason. 
There's a couple that have 10. And some of the individuals, their goal is once they get their original market developed, they want to go to other places in the country that have opening and develop there and eventually get up to 30, 40 units once they figure out how to do it. So multi-franchise, owning multi, multi-units multi of a franchise, to me, I think is the way to go, uh, particularly if it's something that you believe that you can handle. Also, I like multi-unit, multi-brand. And there's a lot of people in the industry that do that, that don't initially think about that. And going to the multi-unit franchise conference and talking to people who do that, to me, was really eye-opening because I'm kind of like, hmm, that's exactly what we did before. You know, even at the end of the day, this this brand here specialized in this, this brand specialized in that, but they're all under one roof. And it's exactly how most private equity firms work. And from a business person, somebody who's really in tune with business, when you look at the economy of scale that you can do, where you have, let's say you have a professional who is managing your your books, uh, your reports, your compliance, each one becomes much more cost-effective, okay? And they don't have to necessarily be in the same industry. And so uh, I met a guy at that conference who owned six you know, hair salon type franchises. Then he owned food. And, and then I think he may have had a um, home service brand for restoration. I'm like, none of these make sense. Okay. But he, he basically figured out how to make that work. And so he was looking for the opportunity and what would fit within what he could do. And so the one, the one thing that we're limited on is time. So I kind of look at it like I will end up buying another brand, a uh, multi-unit similar brand. I can't tell you what it is. I can't tell you when it's going to be. Um, but when it does... I thought happen, you said it was voters. <laughs> very well could be. Very well could be. Is, you know, w- when you look at it, it's kind of like, what is the model? How's it going to work with what you're trying to achieve as far as your, your personal goals? And are you comfortable... Um, you know, being in that culture and that environment. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I couldn't agree with you more about like all business is the same at, at the principles. Like if you understand how to run a business in restoration, you could do mental health or peace, it doesn't matter. But, you know, I, I learned a lot. Like, you know, obviously your your company is owned by, or, or Ellie is owned by private equity, by Princeton Equity Group. Great, great firm. They bought my last company and um, I had the opportunity to work uh, for that company for a couple of months and learned so much about how, to just structure a company the right way, put the right people in the right seats. I went on to then read a ton of books on on that type of industry and and how you know my biggest thing was how does someone that not is not in an industry get into it and be able to run it so well and you know from from those principles and I think it's it's because all businesses do have the same kind of core uh, principles and it's funny because like we have that with people that are looking at Voda. I always explain them like if you think you're going to be cleaning floors or you know extracting water. Uh, from basements, like that's not the business you're going to be in. You're going to be in the, the leading of people business, lifting people up. And the higher, like the little bit of success I've had so far, the higher up I go, the more I realize my job is just to lift people up, push people's boundaries, uh, people's, you know, past what they think they can do. Um, and that would be the same in any business you own. So once you learn how to really run a business, I think, I think they're all very similar. And then there's just nuances to, to each one, but 
with what you do is just great because you're helping people during a time of need. I'm helping people during a time of need. Christian, you're helping people find a business during a time in need of, of what they want to do. Um, and again, that goes back to, I think, the idea of you love what you do. It's not just, it's not just to make money. Um, actually, I've been to the, the Discovery Day for LA, and I think that's the first thing Chris, one of the founders there, asks is why you're here. And I think if your answer is just to make money, they don't really want you to be in the system from what I remember going there, but. Yeah, they did, they have a selection process and they, I, you know, I saw them turn people away at my discovery day and uh, people that just kept on talking about how much money am I going to make? You know, what's in it for me, so to speak? You know, that's not a good partner for that brand uh, because yes, you're, you know, you're going to make money, but there's also another reason behind doing this business. But Dan, you're absolutely correct in what you're saying. All businesses are the same. I remember something that really helped me. I, I used to be a big reader. Well, I still have my books or education. But then also myself and my partners, we had a mentor. Actually, it was kind of a weird situation, but he worked with us for a few years and guided us through things. And he constantly used to tell me, particularly, he goes, look, as soon as you can wrap your mind around the fact that you don't have to do everything in your company. You can delegate and create these systems, policies, and procedures. He goes, you can own 50 companies. And he goes, and work less and make 10 times the amount of money. And I'm like, well, our business is different. He goes, see, right away, you weren't even listening. He goes, at the end of the day, it's all the same. Okay. You're following the same form for your taxes. The lines in the taxes are the same. Okay. But I'm like, yeah, well, we do this. And this is why we're different. He goes, it doesn't matter. The IRS doesn't care. <laughs> well, that, and that's because like what made you your money probably in the early days, the hustling, right? To be a CEO, you have to kill the hustler. So like what got you to where you are today, which was being the hustler, to be a great manager of business, you have to actually get rid of that mentality and get yourself more into like a, a mentor and helping people decide, make decisions themselves without you and just help them kind of steer them. And, but that's the opposite of the hustler. The hustler just wants to go, oh, I'll do it myself, get out of the way. You know, I can do it faster or better, or, you know, whatever. And I think that's a big learning curve for a lot of people when they get into owning a business. It's not about doing everything yourself. It's actually quite the opposite. Correct. And it depends on what your job is. And then after I, you know, became better at like coaching people and training people, something I would tell we used to, we used to have to lay out these uh, cheerleading floors. And so we'd always have to hire a crew to do it. Either we brought them with us or we hired them local. And I would always teach whoever the production manager was. It's like, look, the minute your back is turned and you're doing this, the crews over here are probably doing nothing. So what you need to do is to teach them and show them and always be available in front of them where they can see you. You know, don't turn your back on them uh, because you're proving how fast you can do it, but you're not showing them how to do it. I think that makes a ton of sense. Before we wrap up, Mike, I briefly wanted to touch on the build-out process a little bit uh, because I know that's something that is very easily to do wrong if you don't do it the right way. And um, and what's nice about Ellie is it's not you don't need some class A retail front. Um, but still, there is a little bit of a build-out involved. So what, what was that process look like? What have you learned from it? What are some of the do's and don'ts that you would offer to uh, someone else that's maybe getting into more of a, a brick-and-mortar or some kind of business where there is some level of a build-out? I think the key with that is to develop a relationship with a good real estate broker. 
and basically understand the market and the type of space that you want and how to negotiate the lease. Uh, because in the, in the FDD and item seven, they're going to give you a wide range of what the cost is. And depending on the type of business that you have, retail is very coveted now. Office space is not coveted. Uh, flex space is kind of in the middle. So understanding that process and then getting, uh, understanding that the permit process oftentimes takes a lot longer than what people think. Uh, and do your homework on that. And, uh, this is the business person to me. Uh, a, a lot of people do not understand um, tenant improvements and basically the costs and how that can fluctuate your cash flow. And to really look at that, is it better to not take cash and do that, get that built into a lease somehow, amortize it over the, over the life of that lease, save that cash, which is king, and use that for your backup cash. And so there's that is something that I think that a lot of franchisors could probably help. Ellie did a great job of it, problem uh, and uh, um, talking about that. But just having done it before, I see a lot of first-time franchisees kind of stumble with that process. Absolutely, and there's certainly an order of operations to it too. You got to make sure you do things in the right order and. And there's a lot to know. I mean, there's a there's a book. I'm I'm uh, I'm blanking on it right now, but I think it's called Brick and Mortar Success, specifically as it relates to franchising. And and uh, the author again, I I feel bad for blanking on her name, but um, she she built out all the McDonald's, and it was actually kind of her idea, along with some other people, to build out and put all the McDonald's and Walmart's. And so she talks about what the build out process is, horror stories. So you got to make sure you do it the right way, uh, which is why I wanted to ask you because I know that you know there are. There's some nuance to it, but the nice thing is, since Ellie is partnered with the Repum Group, I know that they have a division, Buildum, that specifies and specifically works and helps and coaches franchisees with um, with helping them through that build out process. So I think that's that's fantastic. Yeah, and it's 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 basically once again following the directions, and then also that is that is something that it is essential that the franchise owner control the cash during that process and not let it get out of hand. And so that is one piece of advice that I would give because cash is king, saving your cash for when you need it. Fantastic. Well, I guess as we wrap up, we're at the top of the hour here. Dan, did you have anything else? No, Mike, appreciate the time. Obviously, we've known you for a while and appreciate taking some time to join the I Fired My Boss podcast about how you've, you know, I guess you fired your boss a long time ago, but you've... uh, You've, you've continued to be successful in, in being an entrepreneur and business owner and wish you a ton of success. Um, if you're enjoying the I Fired My Boss podcast, please do leave us a review or, um, or, or hit the five-star button. We're continuing to grow this podcast. We enjoy spreading the, uh, the positive information about the good, bad, and the ugly of owning your own franchise business. So thanks for listening in and we'll see you on the next episode. You're f***ing fired. If you want to say those words to your boss, make sure you head on over to ifiredmybosspodcast.com and fill out the form to schedule a no-cost consultation. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and share with a friend who might also want to fire their boss. Hey.